Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we're going to talk about ticks. It's a story we covered when we talked about alpha-gal syndrome, but it's amazing the number of tick-borne illnesses that can actually occur, both in humans and in animals, other animals, non-human animals. (laughs) But uh, how do we deal with the problems of ticks, and are they growing? It seems like they really are. And are there new technologies that can help us strategically control tick-borne illness by modern biotechnological means? And today we're speaking with Dr. Monica Gulianus. She's an assistant professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and Dr. Jason Razgan. He's a professor of entomology and disease epidemiology at Penn State University. So welcome to the podcast, Jason and Monica. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, this is really cool. I think that it's such a universe that I've never bothered to really look at and uh, but ticks are always there, especially where I live out on a farm. We see them almost all the time. And as disease vectors kind of fly under the radar next to mosquitoes. And so, but still very important in terms of human pathology. So we think of these as kind of, you know, occasional pests. You see one now and then on your, on your, on you or your pet, but how much threat do ticks pose in terms of disease vectoring? So, so one thing I would say is that your um, viewpoint is a little bit colored by where you are. Um, here in central Pennsylvania, uh, ticks are a major public health problem. Um, there, ticks are actually, and tick-borne diseases are actually the most important vector-borne diseases in the United States. And uh, central Pennsylvania, especially central Pennsylvania, where I'm located, is essentially you know ground zero for tick-borne diseases. So here in State College, uh, people are extremely aware of ticks and tick-borne pathogens, primarily um, Lyme disease uh, parasites. Um, And that's going to change depending on where you are in the country. Okay, so that's really important. What are some of the diseases that are commonly vectored? Now, you mentioned Lyme disease, but is that the big one or are there more than that? Um, There are more, uh, definitely. There is, uh, especially again here in, in sort of the Northeast, there's Powassan virus and also a very, very closely related virus called deer tick virus, which are in the tick-borne encephalitis group of viruses. They're much less common compared to Lyme disease, but they're um, much more deadly. So they can still be very important and cases seem to be on the rise in recent years. Uh, And ticks can also transmit anaplasma and ehrlichia and other types of tick-borne bacteria. Yeah, just to add to what Jason said, there are... um almost about 20 different tick-borne pathogens have been um, identified so far, and um, there there will be more as we learn more about tick-borne diseases. So, yeah, many. And even one tick species, uh, say, for example, Exodus scapularis, that is known Lyme disease vector, uh, can transmit up to seven different pathogens, including Powassan virus. That's really an interesting point, because it seems to me that you never heard of ticks transmitting disease you know, at least I didn't, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And then you started to hear of Lyme disease. 
And then you would hear about, you know, something else, maybe alpha gal or something, which, you know, is more of an allergy than a, than a, um, than a disease. But are, are we getting better at identifying the diseases or have they always been here, but we've just misdiagnosed them? Um, I think it's a mix of both. Uh, we have better diagnostic tools now, and uh, also the uh, that's why probably we are we also know a lot more about these uh, uh, these pathogens. And also, if I'm not mistaken, Lyme disease was uh, um, identified um, in '80, so it's not really that long since we have known about Lyme disease. We knew there was something going on in Lyme, Connecticut, and other areas in Northeast, but we just didn't know the pathogen and the vector. So now since we know, um, and the ticks have been getting a, a bit more of, a lot more people are doing research on ticks. So I think um, that's how we know a little bit more um, diagnostics. So of course, is a plays a big role. Uh, up until I remember five years ago, um, CDC used to um, only report 30,000 cases annually of Lyme disease, or at least that's what the CDC website suggested. And now we know that uh, this is the number is uh, close to half a million. One other thing that's important to realize is even though that Lyme disease was only sort of described and recognized in the 1980s, uh, it's actually been around for a long, long time. People have gone in and, and tested museum specimens and mummies and things. Uh, for the Lyme disease parasite, and they found it. So it's been around for probably hundreds of years, um, if not longer. So how serious are tick-borne illnesses? I know most people see a tick, they pick it off and throw it away and don't think twice about diseases it may be vectoring. Uh, I think people are getting more aware now. And um, since I know that we receive a lot of tick samples here in Nevada, there aren't very many ticks, but we do... um, get samples from people in Nevada if they have been to California side and got a tick, so they usually send us ticks. So people are definitely getting more aware of tick-borne diseases. Um, How prevalent they are, as I mentioned, almost about half a million of Lyme disease cases annually are reported in the United States. Um, It could be quite deadly um, or quite, um, if not deadly, I think it can be, um, it has uh, the I think more and more we're kind of learning about the long-term Lyme disease or, or what we now, I think, came to term with the, with the term post-treatment Lyme disease is, uh, um, is, is pretty debilitating. Um, and as uh, Jason mentioned earlier, the Poisson virus and the tick-borne virus, they can be deadly. I'm sure Jason would like to add more to it. Yeah, and again, I would say as far as being aware of tick-borne diseases, again, I think that changes depending on where you are. Here in State College, if I go out or if my colleagues go out and grab wild ticks and test them, 50% of them or more are going to be infected with the Lyme disease pathogen. Um, So if you get a tick on you, 50-50, that you're going to get Lyme disease. Um, Almost everybody that I know has had Lyme disease here at least once. Uh, I've never had it. I'm very, very anal about checking myself for ticks if I'm out in the woods. I live in the woods. Um, a lot of people, though, kind of aren't, especially, you know, people that hunt and people that, that do things outdoors. And it's just kind of um, sort of part of the, the part and parcel with, with the lifestyle of living uh, in this area. So here, people are very aware of ticks and tick-borne diseases. Uh, but again, it's primarily focused on Lyme disease. They're less aware of some of the other pathogens, such as Powassan virus, that could also be a problem. Yeah, down here in Florida, we get key Lyme disease. 
<laughs> All right, I had to do it, right? Uh, no, I, 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 my mom always used to put a little front line on the back of my neck before I every month. And uh, anyway, um, so I guess the other big question is: Is it one type of tick per disease, or can multiple species of ticks carry the same pathogen? Uh, it depends on the pathogen. So there's some some bacteria that can be tra transmitted by multiple different tick species. Other ones seem to be more fastidious. So the Lyme disease bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi, seems to really only be transmitted by uh, Ixodes scapularis and closely related Ixodes species that like such as Ixodes ricinus in Europe. Um, uh, also, also Ixodes specificus here on the west coast. But those are one of the common names for those ticks. Uh, black-legged tick or deer tick, um, and here in West, we call it Western black-legged tick, so it's a different species. Okay, so so do the ticks, how do they get infected? Do they bite you first or bite a human first that has the bacterium and then spread it, or is there another uh, zoonotic event in there somewhere? So generally, uh, for Lyme disease, uh, rodents are the primary vertebrate reservoirs. And so the, the, the larval ticks, the baby ticks, will feed on those rodents uh, and pick it up, uh, and the, or they can pick it up as nymphs as well. Uh, and then when, when the, the adults um, feed on a, on a human, they'll transmit it to the human. Um, I believe humans are dead-end hosts for Lyme disease parasite, which means that a tick feeding on an infected person will not become infected. Monica, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Oh, no, that, that's correct. Same as deer. So deer are also right. dead-end host. Um, although they are very good at transporting ticks, they, uh, in terms of epidemiology, they are dead-end dead host as well as humans. So what are our current strategies for controlling tick-borne illness? Uh, Lyme disease here um, is mostly antibiotics. Um, for the most part, if you, if you present to the doctor here in Pennsylvania with a tick bite, they're not even going to test the tick. You can have it tested yourself, but they're just going to prescribe antibiotics um, because, again, you have a 50-50 chance of that tick being infected. The problems with, with, in the early stages, Lyme disease is pretty easy to treat with antibiotics. The problem becomes if you have a chronic Lyme or Lyme that hasn't been treated, uh, that can get much more difficult to treat later on. Uh, ticks are difficult to control um, so, you know, you, if you're out in the woods, you need to be just very uh, cognizant about, you know, having no place in your clothes where they can get in or having repellent on um, so that they, they don't attach to you. Um, we generally use pyrethroid, pyrethrins when we, when we go out in the woods. And a lot of the sort of the, the, the control is basically um, centered around avoidance of tick bites or checking yourself to make sure that you can pull the ticks off before they have a chance to transmit. Um, if you do get Lyme disease, then it's it's treated with antibiotics. Um, for some of the viral diseases like Powassan virus, um, there really is no treatment other than supportive therapy. Uh, and those ticks can transmit Powassan relatively quickly within maybe 15 minutes of, of biting. I was going to say that's also, um, I think, very geographic dependent. Um, like Jason said in, uh, in State Park in Pennsylvania, where he is, it's because it's prevalent. So a lot of doctors, a lot of clinicians are uh, aware of Lyme disease. So they uh, put people on uh, antibiotics. But if you are in other parts of the country where Lyme disease is not that common, uh, many times Lyme disease go unnoticed. Well, where are the hot spots in the world for, for tick-borne illness? Is it Happy Valley? <laughs> are you really down in ground zero there? 
Um, for the United States, sort of the Northeast, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New York, Maine, um, Maryland, um, you start to get into other tick species as well. Um, so that's sort of the general hotspots. In, in Florida, you have ticks, but you don't have really the disease. And that has to do more about um, sort of the, the, the climate and the life cycle of the ticks uh, in terms of them being able to amplify pathogens in the population or because of the, the, the environment that basically doesn't work that doesn't work as efficiently. And you also have things like lizards where if the ticks feed on the lizards, uh, the complement in the lizard will actually clear the, the bacterium out of the tick, um, which we don't have up here so much. Uh, and also if you talk about worldwide, you know, Europe, um, Asia, those, these Middle East can be, um, uh, have uh, enormous problems with tick-borne pathogens of, of a variety of different uh, types. But when we are saying U.S. being a hotspot, I think we're only thinking about Lyme disease, but we're not thinking about the um, tick as agricultural pests, so feeding on cattle, which is a huge problem in, um, in Southern and South America and Asia, uh, Africa as well, where cattle is a huge industry and ticks, cattle ticks especially, uh, cause a lot of damage. Well, that's really great. I finally understand a lot more about ticks. It's always interesting when people fear things like sharks and shark attacks, where mosquitoes and ticks are, seem to be doing so much more damage. So we'll come back on the other side of the break, and we'll talk about ticks and some new mitigation strategies, which have come from Dr. Razgon and Dr. Gulia Noos. This is the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Monica Gulianus and Dr. Jason Raskon about ticks. They're disease vectors. They're a bigger problem all the time. But now new technology and biotechnology is working on limiting their numbers and their threat. And so that's where really, really where we got in touch. So I saw on Twitter when I saw Dr. Raskon post about the new paper where uh, Dr. Gulianus, you were the lead author in the study on uh, tick biotechnology. So what was that paper about? So this paper is specifically about uh, developing tools. So we developed two different uh, methods of editing um, genes in ticks uh, using CRISPR technology. So one of the method is the classic method of uh, uh, injecting embryos and then um, develop and taking them to the adult stage. That's most uh, arthropods, especially insects, uh, um, have done. Um, and mosquitoes, this is the, the way to, to, to make transgenic mosquitoes. Um, same with other flies as well. And uh, so this was one of the major breakthrough because nobody has ever injected tick embryos. Those were deemed uh, impossible to be injected. So this our paper now uh, opens the path to do more work because we have developed an embryo injection protocol and we have used it to do uh, CRISPR knockouts. 
Second way to do it is the method that was developed by Dr. Raskin's lab. Um, and this is a, is a really nice tool, um, especially for the labs that don't have the sophisticated equipment to do embryo injection. So this is called a remote control. Um, and in this uh, method, we inject adults, gravid females instead of uh, embryos. So the, the cargo is taken up by the embryos within the female um, before she lays eggs. Um, so we use these two tools to genetically modify, uh, to show that ticks can be genetically modified. Neat. So in that second method, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. You're you're using like microinjection or something to inject into the, the, the body cavity of the female that's gravid. And then somehow is, are you injecting the uh, gene editing complex into like in the ribonucleic protein complex into the female and then it's kind of finding its way into the eggs and making edits so the way way this works so this is a a project that my lab has been working on for quite a while um, to basically get rid of the necessity to inject embryos and so what we have done is we identified a very small peptide ligand it's about 40 amino acids that binds uh, specifically to receptors on the arthropod ovary and we fuse this peptide basically to anything we want. In this case, it's fused to the Cas9 protein. And so you can make uh, the ribonucleic protein complex with that modified Cas9. And when you, you inject that into the, the open circulatory system of the female arthropod, um, when she's undergoing vitellogenesis, these, these peptides are based on yolk protein precursors. And so they're basically the receptor binding region um, of those yolk protein precursors. And so basically... The, it causes, when you inject it into the open circulatory system, it gets taken up into the ovaries the same way that yolk protein would get taken up into the ovaries during egg development. And so uh, the interesting thing, a couple of interesting things is, number one, the peptide that we use, uh, it's called P2C, and it actually seems to function in about 95% of all arthropod species, even though there's no homology. We don't really understand why at this point, um, we're still working on that. But the point is it does work quite well in most species. And so um, the same construct works in mosquitoes, it works in beetles, it works in, um, uh, again, here we showed that it, Monica and, and our group showed that it worked in ticks. And it's, it's a much easier way of doing, it's a much easier and sort of low tech way of doing these experiments because you don't need all of the fancy equipment to inject embryos. We actually use it, um, it's with a, a mouth tube. It costs about $2. Oh, cool. So so this is one, so you don't need to have the uh, fancy micro injection set up like you do when you, in, in, you know, work on yeast tri- tetrads and stuff. You just, you just actually inject it right into the body cavity, right into the, you said the circulatory system of the, in, of the, uh, of, of any arthropod, which that's a pretty broad set of, uh, organisms so you could really go ahead and and change use this kind of mechanism to pretty much target any gene in any insect right uh that's the plan and we're actually even moving in my lab beyond insects at this point we're working in um, vertebrates now um using uh, similar types of technology so that to get away of from the the need to inject um you know vertebrate embryos which are or, or other kinds of techniques that people use Oh, that's really, uh, really a great technology because that would seem like such a such a, a limiter to being able to do this work. How so? Were people able to do this before, or what were the major barriers? 
Um, so for the adult injection, nobody really tried before. This is something my lab started back in 2011. Uh, and we finally got the system working in about 2017 or 2018. So it took quite a while to sort of figure out what we were doing. Um, but we've, we and, and our collaborators have actually shown that this works in maybe 12 different species, um, all across sort of the taxonomic diversity of arthropods at this point. Um, so various multiple species of mosquitoes, we've done it in obviously here ticks. Um, other groups have done this in beetles. We, we, my lab did it in white flies. Um, we've done it in stink bugs, uh, Drosophila obviously. And um, the actual just testing the ligand function, um, we've done that in about 20 different species. And I've only found one or two where it actually doesn't work. And we had to actually develop a, a different type of ligand. That's really cool, though, because that makes everything so much easier if you can have targeted delivery of the Cas9 and you know guide RNA to those specific tissues where they can uh, create heritable changes. So, what kind of changes are you engineering, or which ones do you hope to engineer to uh, affect tick biology? Well, this is uh, just the beginning. Right now, we have uh, a lot of targets in mind that we would like to um, to go after. Um, some of these targets are related to um, tick immunity, to pathogens. Uh, some are uh, understanding just the basic biology of ticks. So I'm interested in reproductive biology. I have had an um, interest for a long time in insulin signaling pathway in arthropods. I've done a lot of work in um, mosquito insulin signaling pathway. Um, so we are um, interested in understanding what, how it works in, in ticks. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, it's not just my lab, it's uh, the whole tick research community has the tools now and we can start answering questions about tick biology as well as tick pathogen interactions. Um, so it's a, it's a wide open field now to, to start learning about uh, a whole lot more about ticks. What would be a, a great application? Is it really something like self-limiting ticks so that you could do like, you know, sterile insect technique? and maybe knock down numbers in a place where there was an outbreak of Lyme or some you know, other kind of disease? That's quite possible. Uh, we are not there yet. So uh, I would uh, mention that in this paper, we have shown that it's a proof of principle. Yes, it works. We have only shown knockouts so far. We haven't shown uh, knock-ins or insertion or replacement of genes um, yet. That's uh, coming next. So that will be our, our next step to do um, in ticks. And uh, again, uh, another thing to keep in mind, ticks have a pretty long life cycle um, in the lab. We bring it down to about five months, but it's still quite long. So uh, we still have to see heritable mutations in ticks. So this was, we only looked at um, G0 larvae. Um, so we, um, that's uh, again, the future plans is to look at the heritable mutations. Um, gene drive ticks possible, um, the, uh, um, I, I know there will be a lot of, lot of regulations, um, as we are seeing with mosquitoes as well, but uh, um, in sterile in sterile tick technology is uh, not that far in future, I believe now. Have they done anything with sterile tick technology using radiation or any of the old school tricks? Or is that something really just limited to mosquitoes and maybe some other kinds of insects? I don't think they have an... A, a... Yeah, it's, I think that comes more down, to not so much that you couldn't do it. Um, it's, it's really more an issue, I think, of the tick husbandry, where it's very difficult to rear ticks. They take a long time, 
and to rear the numbers that you would need to do and it's, it's just technically very difficult. I see. So, so what about tech ecology, though? I mean, I don't even know what they really do or why they're there. And so what is their ecological role? And what happens if suddenly you were able to limit their numbers? I think, I think their, their role in the environment is to make more ticks. <laughs> they don't really need to do anything <laughs> more than that. Uh, you know, they can be food for things, and stuff, but I, I don't think getting rid of them is, is really going to cause, you know, any kind of major imbalance, yeah, ecological imbalance. Um, they're, they're ectoparasites. And so you know, there are other types of ectoparasites out there, too. If, if anything really is specializing on ticks, and I honestly can't think of anything that specializes exclusively on ticks, um, there's other stuff out there for them to eat, too. So I, I really don't see that if we were able to, to you know, way down the road, because we're not there yet. Um, but if we were able to eliminate uh, tick populations, I don't think it would be a, a huge deal. I worked in a Arabidopsis, right? The model model plant system. And so when they figured out how to do floral dipping, where you dip the flowers in agrobacterium solutions, you get gene transfer events inside the flowers. Um, it sounds almost like you've stumbled into that, well, stumbled. It sounds like you've moved into that same sort of transformational technology that now enables everybody to do really meaningful gene editing experiments that really are the gold standard in understanding gene function, as well as perhaps come up with new applications. That's exactly right. Um, and I, I do the tech community in, in terms of the sort of the vector biology community, I think mosquitoes are kind of overrepresented. The tick, there are a, a fair number of tick labs, but compared to labs that specialize in mosquitoes, there aren't that many. And I, I think part of that is just because it's hard to work on ticks, <laughs> you know, because it, they're hard to rear and we didn't have the tools. And, and now that we're, that these tools are starting to be developed, I think more and more people are, are, are going to be um, beginning to enter that space and work on those systems. Um, although the tick vector biology community is small, uh, there's a quite a large community that works on tick-borne diseases. Yes. So they, uh, they'll be able to use these tools as well to understand uh, more of the pathogen side of works, so tick-pathogen interactions. Oh, very good. Uh, what about other insects? You mentioned this works well throughout arthropods and made a mention of mosquitoes. Is this something that is going to radically change the work on mosquitoes? Um. It could. So the, there's there's a fair number of labs that already do sort of genetic manipulation in mosquitoes. And those labs can already do it with embryo injection. Um, so I, I see this more of not so much of a, the remote control um, adult injection tools. I don't see those as really revolutionizing sort of the, the standing mosquito labs that, that do this work. But what it will do is allow people that you know, either work on systems that are not amenable to, to embryo injection. And there are mosquitoes that, that people have not been able to transform yet because the husbandry is difficult. Um, but beyond mosquitoes, even, uh, I think it has significant potential for bringing the power of, of genetic modification and CRISPR to non-model systems. And that's really the whole point of this project. It's funded by the uh, NSF EDGE program, which is specifically for developing genomic tools and so one of the things that we were able to do, like I said, um, uh, last year or the year before, we were able to, to genetically engineer whiteflies using this technology. And um, there's maybe only one or two other labs in the world that can actually do embryo injection in whitefly. But using this technology, anybody can do it. Um, and, you know, we've sent reagents um, to labs that are in Africa and South America 
um, that just don't have the money to buy the equipment needed to do embryo injection, um, but they can do this. And so it's really opening up the power uh, and expanding the ability of, of, of laboratories uh, to use these genomic tools and genomic techniques without having to shell out tens of thousands of dollars for um, the, the embryo injection equipment. Yeah, I love that. I mean, anytime we can democratize science by allowing better tools to be more accessible, it, it makes a huge difference. And what do you think the first applications will be? Well, what do you hope the applications will be perhaps in ticks that may limit tick-borne illness? Are there genes that ticks maintain that specifically make them good vectors for harboring these specific um, bacteria and viruses? I think there have been, <laughs> yeah, there have been quite a bit of work uh, trying to under uh, to identify um, targets for anti-tick vaccine. And I can uh, see a really an easy way using this technique now to um, understand these uh, functions of these genes that uh, people have been, you know, have identified in the past, but didn't have a direct way of uh, testing. Hypothesis, so um, hopefully we will have better vaccine candidates now since we can. So Dr. Gulia Noose and Dr. Jason Graskon, if people want to learn more about the project and about how to transform arthropods, including ticks, and what's coming up in tick applications, where can they learn more and where do they follow you on social media? Paper is a pretty good resource. Um, we there will be more publications out, so follow us um, either on Twitter. I am at Gulianas Lab, um, and also I ma I maintain um, our lab website um, through UNR. So that's another way to um, learn more about our work. And for me, you can follow me on Twitter at um, VectorGen. And also the Remote Control Project has a Twitter account, uh, Remote Gene Edits. And so we're always posting information there. Um, and if you're interested in more, if, if any of the listeners are working on an insect or arthropod and they want to try uh, the remote control technology, they can just send me an email. We've sent reagents to probably 60 different labs in at least 25 countries across the world now. Um, that are all trying this. So if, if anybody wants to try it, just uh, send me an email. But that's wonderful. And that really reaffirms the NSF mission with the EDGE project, where the EDGE type projects, right? I say absolutely. The whole point of it is, is uh, tools for the research community and resource dissemination uh, is baked into the actual project. So it's all part of it. So we'll send this stuff out free of charge. We're not uh, charging for anything. Yeah, and I really like that because this is this really does reaffirm why NSF exists and the things that they are fueling in basic science research that enable more people to study the systems that they're interested in that have real application and real consequences in the real world. So, you know, this is really great. So congratulations on this one. And thank you very much for Monica and Jason for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Collabro's Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you consume podcast media. The more reviews we have, the more likely people are to follow the podcast. And every week, our listenership grows. Last week had something ridiculous, like 13,000 downloads. So lots of people are listening to the Talking Biotech podcast and going back through the archives and finding old episodes of something they missed that really interests them. So thank you so much for listening. 
This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.